and welcome to this special edition of the Jesuit Border Podcast. This podcast explores the humanitarian response along the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. My name is Brian Strasberger. Earlier this season, it was our pleasure to welcome Susan Bigelow Reynolds to the podcast. Susan is an assistant professor of Catholic studies at Emory University and author of the recently published book, People Get Ready, Ritual, Solidarity, and Lived Ecclesiology in Catholic Roxbury. If you enjoyed hearing from her in episode two, here is the full interview. Susan shares her experience of living in Brownsville years ago and watching out her front window as the border wall was being constructed, an experience that helped inspire her to study theology. Susan spent Holy Week with us in April of 2023, so she reflects on that experience and especially the power of the liturgy and its symbols in the midst of marginalized communities like a migrant camp. The full interview includes her reflections on the contrasts and commonalities between her experience living on the border and her experience in the diverse parish of St. Mary the Angels in the Roxbury neighborhood of Boston. It's a parish close to my own heart because I served there as a transitional deacon during my own priestly preparation while studying theology at Boston College. Susan also advocates for the value of doing theological research on the ground to become more intimate with people's lived realities. We hope you enjoy our full interview with Susan Bigelow Reynolds. We are thrilled to welcome to our episode today Susan Reynolds. She's an assistant professor of Catholic Studies at Emory University's Candler School of Theology. And as a a theologian and ethnographer, she examines the intersection of ecclesiology and lived Catholicism in context of diversity, marginality, and suffering. Thank you for joining us for this episode, Susan. I'm so thrilled to be here. It's really our pleasure. We're glad to have you on the podcast. And, you know, you happen to be the first theologian that we've interviewed uh, in all of the history of the Jesuit Border podcast. So I wondered if, to get things started, if you could just uh, share with our listeners a little bit about what inspired you to study theology and what, uh, how you've found your uh, focus and research area uh, as you've grown into your work. That's a great question. And wow, what an honor, the inaugural theologian. Um, <clears throat> I What propelled me to, to study theology in graduate school actually was my experience of living in Brownsville, living actually very close to where you all live, um, going to the same parish that, that you all serve at in Brownsville. Um, I moved there in 2009. I was part of the Alliance for Catholic Education program out of um, the University of Notre Dame, and I was teaching at a small Catholic school in Harlingen, and my community mates were teaching um, at various Catholic schools in Brownsville. And at the time, we lived right on military highway, right on basically the road that um, tracks right along the border. We lived about a quarter mile in from the border, um, but it was hard to tell how far we lived in exactly because um, because there wasn't a wall there when we moved there. We could see probably straight into Mexico from our front yard and we would go on runs to the river and, um, and back. Um, it was this very contiguous existence. We'd go to Matamoros for, for dinner, um, you know, to visit students, to go out. Um, and then one day in the late fall in 2009, we, we noticed these enormous iron posts um, uh, down, you know, a, a ways down from our front yard, kind of looking into the distance and uh, so dumb. We were like, what, what's that? Um, what, what are they, what are they doing? What is that? Um, and very soon we found out um, they were 
building the border wall, what what's now sort of the feature of that geographical land space, this towering multi-story um, iron rusty wall um, was built before my eyes in front of my front door over the course of a couple of months. And all of a sudden there was a wall where there wasn't a wall before. And I wasn't from the Valley. Um, I'm from Denver, <laughs> just like Brian. Actually, we grew up in the same parish. We can talk about that That's later. Right. Go Denver. Very parallel lives for a long time. Um, so I, I'm not from Texas. I'm not from the border. I'm not from the Valley. Um, I'd, I'd spent time in Chile and, and had in undergrad, I studied a lot of Latin American politics, but um, but I wasn't from the Rio Grande Valley. And yet, even having only lived there a few months, this this image of this wall existing where it hadn't before became kind of a scar in some way that that I took into myself. Um, I don't think it's possible to to witness that kind of um there's a violence to it when when you build a wall like that um and and it changed me in a certain way and um when my time in in the ace program was finished um i i realized i i wanted to study um i wanted to study theology because i wanted to think harder about what what that sort of a barrier meant um and what it means to be church across borders what it means to be church in spite of borders I was also really inspired, honestly, by the faith practices of the parish that you all serve at now, San Felipe de Jesus, um, in the Colonia of Cameron Park. Um, the, the little former convent that we lived in off of Military Highway was actually condemned after my first year. So it was bulldozed, um, and we were moved to a slightly more habitable house that was right near Cameron Park. And um, and we started attending San Felipe de Jesus, and I was really kind of enchanted with um, the way that the community there celebrated all kinds of things, but especially um, Holy Week, which which we can talk about later. But in in a real way, it was my experience in the Rio Grande Valley that propelled me to the study of theology. So you were talking about the kind of these these questions of wanting to get deeper mm-hmm. with um, these questions of uh, <clears throat> kind of. Building walls, what does it mean to be a church across borders? Getting to that particular level, what was one of those very compelling particular questions where, like, all right, looking at what it means to be church, what it means to uh, be church across borders, like, specifically, was there, like, a specific question uh, at some point that really kind of captured your imagination or drove some of your research? Yeah, well, it was interesting, um, because I went to grad school in Boston, which is not the same as the Rio Grande Valley um, in almost every way. And one of the um, uh, the more salient, but less maybe like theologically meaningful ways is that the cost of living in Boston is radically higher than it is in Brownsville, as you can imagine, which meant that when I got out of my two-year uh, quasi-volunteer teaching experience and moved to one of the more expensive cities in the United States, I had nowhere to live uh, and no money to to pay to live anywhere. Um, And so I lived in a church. I lived in the rectory of a very small inner city parish called St. Mary of the Angels in the neighborhood of Roxbury, um, for those familiar with Boston. Um, And what I 
found there, much to my deep surprise, was that in in a way not so dissimilar from Brownsville, this too was a kind of border space. Um, it was a community that was really deeply rooted in the neighborhood, and it served folks really from, from all over the world, from all over the hemisphere, also from some of coastal Africa. There were folks from Spain there. Um, in the 1980s, it was serving folks from you know more than 40 countries on basically a, a no budget and with facilities that were that were failing at best. Um, things were in slightly better shape when we got there um, in 2011, but in some way it was still very much a poor church for the poor um, and existed in this in this position of really profound solidarity with the lives of the folks that it served. Um, and I was living in the rectory. I was living in a in a place meant for a priest, um, but I was a 24-year-old lay woman <laughs> engaged to be married. Um, and I was able to experience the life of this sort of borderland um, from the inside out in a way that kind of refined the questions that I was asking as I was going to class every day. Um, you know, I, I really wanted in grad school, aside from the fact that I simply couldn't afford to live anywhere else, I really wanted to kind of keep two feet in, in reality. I mean, Grad school is reality also, I, I hope, because that is where I now teach uh, in a graduate theological context. Um, but I, I wanted to keep my feet really embedded in, in the lives of concrete communities on the ground. I wanted to make sure that that remained the space from which I was asking my theological questions. Um, and this community that I was living in taught me so much about what it means to do solidarity in an ecclesial context in ways that are very particular. Um, I think we talk a lot about being one in Christ and unity and diversity and how we're all united in the Eucharist and all of those wonderful things, which I truly believe. And yet, right, if you've ever been in any sort of community where you're negotiating different races, different classes, different cultures, different languages, I hope we all know that it's not nearly that easy. And in fact, it can be the source of tremendous pain. Um, and in this community, learning their history, talking to elders in the community. This, this is a community that eventually became the focus of my master's thesis and then my dissertation. Um, and then and most recently, the um, a book I just published called People Get Ready. Um, I received an education in what it means um, to be a church in solidarity in really concrete ways. So I think that that, that became the particular question that I became interested in asking the, theologically is what is what is this this profound tradition of solidarity theologically mean for the relationships that exist within the church, right? Often we think of solidarity as like go on a service trip over spring break or we, we go on an immersion program and we're in solidarity with folks who are very far away, which is an important thing to, to do. But often we re neglect those, those near neighbors, um, the folks in our own backyard, the folks in our own parishes and communities. Um, and I became really interested in asking the question of what, you know, what it, means really to to exist in a in a relationship um of of deep friendship and solidarity um with those who are who are our neighbors um and yet often those that we neglect the most i appreciate susan the way that you're 
you draw both the contrast between Brownsville and Boston, which are many, but then also just being able to identify some of the, the parallels in tor- terms of the, the borders that we construct, even just the presence of migrants. I think that's a big message that we often like to share. You know, people take a lot of interest in the border. It becomes a focal point. It becomes uh, this kind of microcosm to talk about immigration. But obviously, immigration is a much bigger question, even just in geographical scope, right? I mean, we've got to be asking questions about the places people are coming from, the journeys that they make. Uh, Different components of that journey have been highlighted even more recently, like migrants coming from South America and traveling through the Darien Gap, for example, that connects South America to Central America. Obviously, the train that goes through Mexico, just all kinds of things. And that's on the way here and then the border. And then, of course, you've got communities spread across the U.S. I mean, every city in the U.S. has migrants in it, right? And Boston is certainly a big one. We work with a lot of Haitian women down here, and there's a large Haitian population in Boston, so it's not uncommon that the pregnant women that we uh, help and accompany down here end up with uh, with Boston. They, they share their sponsor's phone number, and it's a Boston area code. I'm like, okay, they're joining the, the large Haitian community that's in Boston. So we always like to highlight and say, you know, immigration is not a border issue. It's a it's a larger larger issue than that. So I, I appreciate the way you're kind of both drawing the, the distinctions between a city like Brownsville and where you're living, where you're literally looking out at Mexico and seeing the wall being built, but then also uh, to see the parallels that a city like Brownsville might have with Boston and in terms of the, the barriers and bridges that we build. And you did great research there. I mean, the book you wrote, People Get Ready, of course, uh, is a great deep dive into that. And now you're, you're continuing to ask questions, you're continuing to do good theological research, and part of that is what brought you to visit us here in Brownsville uh, just earlier this year. So maybe you could share a little bit about what it was, what it is that you're researching now, and how that inspired your trip to come see us. Absolutely. Um, the research that I'm working on now um, actually grew out of, again, out of my experience as a very young woman living in Brownsville um, and continued into Boston. And then now I feel like I find I'm getting to do the project that I always dreamed of doing. One of my more powerful memories from my second year in Brownsville when I was living there um, was uh, some of the Holy Week practices, especially both the uh, Stations of the Cross that was through the the streets of Cameron Park, um, but then also a, a unique Friday night um, ritual that, that is, I think it's Spanish in origin, um, but has a particular devotion in certain areas of Latin America, including Mexico, um, which is called the, the procession of silence, the procesión del silencio, which is a procession with a sort of veiled, um, uh, Mater Dolorosa, uh, statue through local streets. They do a really big one, actually, at the diocese in Brownsville does a really powerful one as well. Um, but they too, when I was um, when I was living in Brownsville, there was this really fascinating um, procession. Uh, there's a drum corps that always accompanies it and men are carrying this um, this very, very large statue um, of Our Lady of Sorrows cloaked physically in in black lace through the streets at dusk. Um, and it was just it kind of captured my imagination um, in some way. I grew up in a suburban parish, um, which was a lovely place to grow up in many ways, but there wasn't a a very notable sort of public facing element to uh, the the worship practices uh, that that we that we 
practiced as, as a parish. And, um, and I think when I moved to Brownsville, that was something that really captured my imagination. Um, when I lived in Boston, one of, again, one of the, the sort of most fascinating pieces of the devotional life of the parish that I was at there, St. Mary of the Angels, was again, this Good Friday procession through the streets of Eggleston Square, the neighborhood in Roxbury, where the parish was located. And they'd been doing it since at least the 70s. And it started as this kind of a liturgical protest uh, against this real scourge of gang violence that had taken root by then and which uh, sort of continued to be magnified throughout the, the 1980s and 90s and, and even to today. Um, and so every year on Good Friday, folks would plan the route and um, the stations of the cross, you know, one through 14, Jesus is condemned to death, Jesus falls for the first time, Jesus meets his mother, and so on, um, become places in the community where suffering and death and, and resurrection um, have sort of uh, made themselves known throughout the prior year. So a corner, I remember my first time I, I participated, like a corner where a young 13 pre-teenaged boy um, had been shot uh, in a sort of random drive-by um, act of gun violence. He was walking to meet uh, his folks for Friday night choir practice, church choir practice um, at, an, I think, a Seventh-day Adventist church. Um, and he was shot and he survived, but um, it was this real sort of wound in the community. Um, and that was the first stop on the on that year's way of the cross. Um, and I and I always in that. So the fourth chapter of, of my book um, looks really deeply into what a, a ritual like that meant for the community there, which was, as you said, a community of migrants, a community of African-Americans who had migrated north during the Great Migration, a community of migrants from, from Haiti and the Dominican Republic and um, Cuba and uh, millions of places in between. Um, and it was just, it was, it, it struck me as this profoundly meaningful both spiritual practice and also sort of a um, a practice of theological agency, right? It was a way that the community was telling their story um, to themselves um, and claiming divine solidarity in the midst of their sufferings, in the midst of their struggles, um, placing themselves in some way in, in the person of Jesus, right? And saying that the crosses that I bear in everyday life um, are crosses, right? Um, and they're unjust. Um, and and we live in hope um, for resurrection. Um, and so I always dreamed of of writing a book that looked at the ways that communities sort of on the edges of both society and and the church practice the stations of the cross publicly. Um, and so one of the first stops I made after I received <laughs> grant funding to do that project, thank you, Louisville Institute. Um, was Brownsville. And of course, in some way, I'm always just looking for an excuse to come back to, to the valley. Um, but but it was sort of this return because I had experienced the power of, of Good Friday there before. Um, and so I was grateful to be able to um, bring a student of mine along with me, my student, Sarah Buter, who's about to leave to become a Marinal missioner for three years um, in Central America. Um, and the two of us came and visited you all um, because you were so generous um, in sharing your your time and your community with us for that week. Um, and Sarah accompanied Brian uh, to, to Reynosa um, during Holy Week. And I accompanied 
Flavio and Louis uh, to the migrant camp in Matamoros um, and was able to uh, celebrate along with them and the folks there um, the liturgies of the Triduum. It was in incredibly powerful. You had questions that kind of led you back to uh, to, to, to Brownsville, back, back here. Um, what questions arose after your time here in Brownsville when you came, when you went back? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, there, I mean, there were several things um, for me that that arose while I was here, and that's, um, I guess, as a theologian too. That's kind of always what I'm looking for. When I was a kid, I dreamed of being a journalist, and I think I still sort of see my work in that vein. I I wanna, I wanna know where the theological story is. Um, and so I'm always I'm always looking to answer questions, but I think I'm always I'm always just trying to figure out um, what what other questions I should be asking. Um, and and there were a number of ways really that returning to the valley, returning to Matamoros, kind of reoriented the larger questions um, that were driving my my project. Um, I think when I first became interested in this form of I guess we could call it liturgical protest. That's not all it is, um, but but I think there's something about that 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 just always was really fascinating to me. Um, this public facing sort of witness using these these deeply traditional, right? This medieval ritual form, this, the stations of the cross, the way of the cross, um, as a way of witnessing to to radically contemporary realities and problems. Um, I always pictured it as something sort of radically interruptive, right? Like the cross in the public square, sort of bearing witness and judgment upon the searing injustices of our day. And um, and it was so fascinating to me that um, I, I kind of, that was the image that I had in my head. Um, and that's how I'd always seen these rituals before. But um, on on Good Friday, so in, in the migrant camp in Matamoros, we, um, we concluded the um, the liturgy that day with a via crucis, a, a way of the cross, through the center of this migrant camp, um, and um, and basically to the foot of the international bridge. Um, we we didn't mean to go as far as we did, but um, but there were still three stations left, so we just had to keep going. And um, in the night before. Um, the night before Good Friday, so Thursday night, it it rained just torrentially and and fiercely in a way that having been there the day before felt really gut wrenching um, to be in a bed and and know it was just absolutely ravaging these precarious structures um, that that folks were living in um, on the bank of the Rio Grande down this really steep, muddy embankment um, in Matamoros and um, and knowing in a sense what, what we were gonna find the next day. And sure enough, um, it, was a, it was a hell of a night and nobody had slept in people's, um, you know, well-constructed plastic tarp and trash bag structures had been lashed apart and people had tried to dig trenches to divert the water and it didn't work and things were just a mess. And so we're, we're walking through the center of this camp, um, there was sort of like an informal kind of aisle in the, in the middle of this this camp. Um, so folks had 
tents and stuff on either side. And then there was sort of a, a path, I guess, through the middle. Um, and uh, and we we walked the, the way of the cross basically through this path and then up this steep embankment and everyone is slipping and, and falling because it's muddy and people, you know, have very inadequate shoes and, um, and or, or they're, you know, or they're in socks or they're barefoot. Um, and of course, because it had rained, the whole street was flooded out too. Um, and it was just chaos, like everything was, it was chaos. And here we were marching with this 10 foot cross um, that someone in the camp had had made um, out of some scrap wood. And it, I think it was about 10 feet tall. It was truly enormous. It was very, very powerful. Um, folks taking turns carrying it, eventually everyone carrying it, a lot of people carrying it together. We navigated through this sort of um, kind of a turnstile um, that you have to move through to get into the area before the bridge. And with this giant cross and this huge crowd and a couple of priests investments, and then there was a news crew there. Um, and then like, I was there with my like little camera and notepad. And I mean, it was, one would think this would be a spectacle, right? Um, but it, but it wasn't, right? It was, it was chaos entering into more chaos. Um, it, it, you know, maybe some people stopped and were like, okay, like that might as well happen. But in general, I mean, you have, you have the police there and the military because it's a border checkpoint, right? And cars lined up and the street is completely flooded out and cars are stalled because the street is stalled. There's people selling things. There's, I mean, it was, it, it was just, it was chaos. Um, and, and I thought in a way that really, that helped to completely reorient the way that I was viewing processions like this. Um, because in some way it, it showed me like, who's who's really, what's most at stake here? And it's, it's the people who are involved, right? On one hand, it's about witnessing to various publics. Um, it's about making a public statement, a theological statement, a, a social justice statement, but, but mostly it's about people's hearts, right? Um, it, it was, it was very, I mean, it was just, it was so powerful when we finally reached station 14, um, Flavio invited everyone to just sort of gather around the cross, um, and to touch the cross or to touch one another, um, and we concluded with like five or so minutes, just like really intimate prayer. Um, and it was, it was something that was so beautiful to, to witness. Um, and I think, so for me, I think it was this important reminder um, that yes, rituals like this are really meaningful um, and they carry all of this big, I think very important theological meaning, right? But, but mostly right the most the most important thing is the fact that this is a practice of profound accompaniment um for people whose lives have been forgotten and discarded and trampled upon um there is a deep intimacy to it that that felt very holy um to even be part of as a as a witness or a participant um so that was a long that was a long answer and and I and I only tangentially answered your question, but I think that's that's an example, I think, of the way that doing theological research on the ground sort of chastens our big, grand theological concepts and, and sort of helps us to become more intimate with 
with the reality of things and the reality of what's going on in people's hearts. I love the way you paint the picture of your experience there and, and just kind of getting all these images together. I think I've, I've been so moved now two, two years in a row down here of celebrating Holy Week and the way the liturgy in these marginalized communities with migrants at the border, at a shelter or camp or plaza, how the symbols of the liturgy take on a life that I just never have seen them have before. Because in the churches that I've gone to as a, as a kid, as a, even as a Jesuit, just growing up, uh, they just don't take on the same meaning. There, there's, there's a beauty to it always, no matter where you celebrate these liturgies. But I'll never forget that first year celebrating Holy Week in the Plaza of Reynosa, you know, when you go down to wash someone's feet and they're in a migrant camp, you know, you just get much closer to that experience and what it meant for Jesus to wash someone's feet, right? When we decided to do incense there for the very first time uh, during during Holy Week, and it was like, I mean, the, the place where we celebrated Mass in that plaza was 15 feet or less from the porta-potties that serviced that camp, and it was not uncommon to just celebrate Mass amid the smell of those porta-potties present. And that's when that that incense, when you started shaking it and it started just, the aroma of it actually started to fill your nostrils. It was like, holy cow. Like, it's part of what I love about our faith, about our Catholic faith. It's so tactile, right? It's those kind of images. One of the things that I loved that you shared, you know, just to highlight, you were at back at BC recently. You got to give the Dan Harrington lecture. You received Boston College's School of Theology and Ministries Alumni Distinguished Service Award. But as I heard, you started that that talk with an image from Good Friday and an image that influences and, and speaks to the way that you do theology. So I wondered if you could share that that image and what it was that spoke to you about it so much. I'd be happy to. Yeah, it's it it's become an image I, I share now with my students. Um I so as I said on Thursday night, it it just rained. Um torrentially and um and one one thing speaking first to your point about your your particular love for catholic um the tactile nature of catholic uh devotion and life that too i would say that is probably next to maybe next to mary um who is not not associated with the tactile um tangible dimension of our faith as well i would say that the catholic catholic stuff <laughs> is is got to be my favorite thing about being I teach when I teach Catholic history um I teach with a lot of things we actually just took a, a field trip to an antique store a couple of weeks ago in my class um to talk about the the lives of Catholic material objects um the I just I too I find that theologically powerful right because it's this deep affirmation of like our bodies um and and things and memories and, mem you know, memories contained in, in things and eating and drinking and washing and smelling. And, um, I, I, for me, I, I love it all. Um, and so, but as part of that, I became sort of, um, enchanted with what we were packing each day. <laughs> I shared all of my photos, I think with you guys, and I'm sure you guys thought it was very funny how many photos I had of, of just like the trunk of the car each day, because it was this just assortment of things that were either liturgical or being, 
liturgically reappropriated um, things that were borrowed, things that were old, things that were searched for. I remember what I was accompanying Louie and we had to go on this kind of wild goose chase um, for like for hosts um, before mass one day. Um, and even that to me felt like very dear. Um, but I remember we were packing up the trunk on on Good Friday and, um, you know, putting in the, you know, hymnals and the, you know, vestments and this and that and all of these things. Um, and then at the very last minute, um, uh, Louis and Flavio grabbed all of the flattened Amazon boxes that were against the wall of your kitchen. Um, when I when I first arrived and knocked on your door, there was like a towering stack of donations <laughs> that had just come in um, from from your Amazon wish list, and um, in those boxes <laughs> had you know as we all do, what do you do with all the boxes from the mail? Um, were just sitting flattened against your kitchen wall, and um, and at the last minute, um, Louis and Flavio shoved them in the trunk, and I'm like, what are okay? <laughs> interesting choice. I wonder what these are going to be. Um, and when we got to the camp and we're setting up for mass, um, uh, Louis, we laid him on the ground um, in front of this, the makeshift altar, which was made out of um, some stacked wooden pallets. Um, and of course, the Good Friday liturgy begins um, in silence as the priests or, or con celebrants um, process to the front, um, to the altar, and lie prostrate um, in front of the altar and in front of the crucifix. And even in a normal parish setting, right, like it's it's very jarring. Um, I, I always, and, and for some reason, I always kind of forget about it right before we start on Good Friday. And then, and it always kind of surprises me. And, and it just, it freaks me out in like the best way. It's, I, I it's very powerful. Um, but similarly in, in the camp, he started in silence and Louis and Flavio sort of processed forward from, from the crowd that was sort of gathered in a semicircle and, um, and lie prostrate, um, in front of the altar on these, on these Amazon boxes, right on these flattened cardboard boxes. Um, and this is the same ground that everybody has spent, you know, a really unforgiving night on, um, and um and and their shoes are covered in mud <laughs> um and of course they're lying on on their stomachs so their shoes are facing up <laughs> and so um just this image of um of you know these two priests um lying face first in the in the mud on top of cardboard boxes with their shoes just caked in mud um just felt like it to, it spoke to something that felt very true um about i don't know about just sin and humanity and um in the ways that liturgy not completely but 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 in in a real way has the capacity to make space for for a kind of solidarity um to me it was very it was very very powerful and it was an image that i really will will not forget it is a powerful image. In fact, I was kind of getting, I don't know, I feel like I kind of got a slight lump in the throat <laughs> as you were talking about it. Um, Save space to get a lump in your throat. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, but it was, uh, it is it is incredibly powerful. And those images of seeing these, these priests do that. 
Are there any evocative images, though, that you see from the faithful mm. in those moments? They, those moments that kind of emphasize the, the dialogic aspect of the, uh, of the liturgy. We see the faithful responding or reacting in certain ways that was incredibly powerful for you. Was there a moment like that? Oh, so many. Um, one, one, I, I really, I have three very young daughters. Um, they're four, seven and eight. And, um, and a, and a weird byproduct of this project that I'm working on now means that I will not for the foreseeable future celebrate um, Easter with my family, which, which is fine. Um, but it just, it's still, it's a poignant kind of time. And, and I, whenever I'm away from home, um, I'm always thinking about my kids. And so um, I find that I just, I kind of gravitate to mothers also. Um, and in that, and when I was in the, the camp, the first thing that really surprised me and sort of shocked me when we first arrived um, was just how many mo young mothers, mothers of young children um, and pregnant women um, are living in, in these camps. Um, and I mean, uh, some women are, are somewhat newly pregnant. Some women are very pregnant um, based on when they would have started their journeys. You know, it's some would have um, become pregnant along their migration journey, um, which also which it says a lot. Um, and to see these women <laughs> um, carrying children, um, multiple children, um, trying to sort of provide um, in some basic way for their children. Um, it was, so the, So a lot of the people that I that I spoke to most at length um, were, were mothers. There was one mother named Yonetsi, she was from, um, from Venezuela and she, um, she had a three-year-old daughter with her um, who was really, really sick. And she was wrapped in a blanket, but of course, like the blanket is wet. Um, and um, she was she received a tent um, from from the Jesuits the first day I was there. So that was beautiful because the next day, at least, her daughter was waving from the tent, which was really sweet. Um, but talking to her, she had recently arrived in in the camp, and she's telling me about you know how they hiked through you know La Selva, the da the Darien Gap, and um, I'm just imagining and, you know, and seeing her carry her daughter on, you know, during the, the Via Crucis on Good Friday, um, we did a Eucharistic procession again to the border um, the day before on Thursday and she's carrying her. And this is a three-year-old. I mean, three-year-olds are, are big, <laughs> you know, they're not babies, but this girl was so sick. Um, she couldn't walk and, and just, I, I, um, I just remember thinking that, and, and, you know, you just think weird kind of, Th things. I mean, this wasn't strange, but it just, this was the salient thing that entered my head was that she really, she looked like the most tired person I'd ever seen in my life. She reminded me of like, um, of like when you've just given birth <laughs> and you haven't slept for like 72 hours and you're so tired that you're delirious. But she, she had had to exist in this state with her daughter on her hip for months. Um, and I just, um, and then to see her, um, you know, like have her feet washed <laughs> and her daughter's 
feet washed, which was also no small thing because it was kind of cold outside. So some people are like, is this going to be comfortable? <laughs> um, is this, do I want my feet washed? But eventually nearly everyone did have their feet washed. And just to see her be um, cared for in some small way, but, but also like a way that sort of brought her into some kind of communion with like 2000 years of, of people performing this ritual gesture. Like that was very beautiful to me. Um, and I, I think other, there was another, a, a different mother, young mother with um, a couple of kids that reminded me of a lot of my kids. And not only because they were just running around during mass, which is like what my kids do um, in areas of much more comfort, um, but um, like ah, kids everywhere. They're all, they're all the same. Um, but she, um, she was a lector during um, the Easter vigil mass. Um, I think we went with, I think we went with four or five readings. And so we needed a lot of lectors and, um, and she was one of the lectors and her daughters like smacking at her leg as she's trying to proclaim this reading, you know, in full voice so that people can hear. Um, and that too, in a, in a different, but also a similar way. I just, um, it was these beautiful moments of feeling this deep interconnectedness of, of, of mothers and motherhood. Um, also just recognizing um, really just like the, the, un, the untellable level of um, bravery and courage and, and struggle um, that so many women are enduring right now um, in the hopes of, of saving their families. I think it's helpful to paint that picture, share those stories, because that's not always the image that I think people have of migrants, right? You often think, okay, these are young, single men coming up looking for jobs or something like that. And that's the, you know, there are young single men who come to the United States seeking safety and security opportunities. That's not uh, non-existent among the migrant population, but it's important to recognize and, and name and, and to see it and witness to it, I think, the presence of a lot of families, families with young children, pregnant women, who are among the many people who come, uh, who travel, who leave their home country, often because of violent threats, things that are so terrifying that it propels you, even as a mother of young children, to take a three-year-old, carry on your hip and make this journey. You know, you don't... You don't do that lightly. You don't do that because you want to, you know, make sandwiches at the back of a restaurant, right? I mean, you do that because you are propelled forward by some very challenging and difficult difficult circumstances, often in your home country, and 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 you're looking for for safety, you're looking for security, you're looking for a better life and a future for your child, as I think any parent can relate to, right? And I think oh, it's, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's important to to share that to paint that picture because that's what. Uh, that's what the reality is of migration today, right? And it's it's so important too, even because that's also the reality of of men there, right? So I think often we kind of juxtapose these different groups, like, okay, well, you have these women in really desperate situations, their family's been threatened, they're you know they've been forced to leave. You know, we look at them with more sympathy, hopefully. Um, but also, I mean, I talked to so many men is, I mean, I'm thinking of one man in, in, in particular, his name was Alexander and he, he had come alone. He, well, he was, he was traveling with a small group of like four adults, um, but they weren't family. They were just sort of a, a cohort. And, um, but he, he 
was doing this, he had left his, um, he, he had to leave his family um, in order to sort of try and kind of be the first one out um, to, to find a place for his family to join him. He was talking to me about how, um, you know, he had three kids um, at home and, um, and he too, he had hiked through the Darien Gap and he described the experience of seeing a, a dead child um, during, you know, in, in, in the Darien Gap, you know, in this, in this kind of horrific stretch of jungle um, and just feeling like just physically so ill as, as obviously as anyone would, but just all he could think about was, was his children. And he, he talked, um, at one point we were having a conversation and he talked about, um, like his first or second day having arrived in, in Matamoros and, um, he had gone to get like a couple, like a, like a liter of soda and, um, and on the way back to his encampment, this little girl who was, seemed to be the same age as his daughter back home, um, came up to him and asked him for, if she could, if she came up to him with a cup, said, can I have a, a drink? Um, and he said, he just, he of course knelt down and opened his, you know, soda, which probably cost him like significant proportion of the spendable money that he had on him. Um, and of course filled her cup and gave her a drink and then just started sobbing. Um, so it's like, this is, you know, even if we can't see it, like this is, this is everyone's story. Um, and that too, that's another, speaking of stories, like that's a, that's a story that really sort of haunts me, lives in my, in my mind. Man, you know, <laughs> these stories you have, oh man, they're, they're very evocative. Mm -hmm. They provoke a lot. And there's this, um, they kind of speak of like this deep need for redemption and restoration. And that makes me wonder, you know, we have so many images of heaven out there, the, so many ways of understanding heaven, different ways of seeing heaven and thinking about it. Is there an image of heaven that particularly speaks to you? Oh, that's a beautiful question. I mean, there are different moments in my everyday life that feel heavenly, right? Um, the 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 reality of being gathered, being gathered around a too small table, too many people around a small table in a good way, you know, just everybody crowded in sharing everything. Um, when I'm in situations like that, that makes me think, gosh, this is heaven. This really is heaven. I remember when I got married um, and, and it made sense to me for the first time why heaven is often described as a wedding feast, right? It really did. It felt like this is heaven on earth. This is everyone I've ever loved um, together and together in one space. Um, but an image, one image from, from Matamoros that, that ev evoked a sort of heaven, heaven type of imagination in me um, was to get back actually to Brian's, Brian mentioned incense. And similarly, um, during our Easter vigil, which uh, you all apparently received permission from the bishop to have an Easter vigil that was quite early in the day. Um, so we had a sort of afternoon Easter vigil and, um, and uh, the incense in that, in that particular mass, um, it was, it was so beautiful because, um, yeah, the, the, um, 
parable was hanging on a tree um, in the, behind us. And then there was this kind of group of kids um, that sort of were hanging out and the, the group grew and they kind of at some point became kind of um, impromptu altar servers. And of course, like kids and me, um, you know, you love like fire, <laughs> anything that's like a science experiment. And so the, 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 the incense situation was like, oh yeah, like we all want to be sort of part of this. Um, and so it was this very wonderful drawn out process because the kids were like, all you know, helping to stoke the flame or whatever. Um, and it was lovely, but then, um, and that was, it was this kind of like joyful little mayhem for a while, but then, um, and this is another part in the liturgy, any liturgy, right? Not just, not just in a migrant camp. Like this, this always makes me kind of like, oh gosh, this is beautiful. Um, but it struck me in a particular way when the priest sort of incenses um, the, the, the book and the gifts and, and the concelebrant and there's, you know, bows, da, da, da. I'm sure that's how they describe it. And in, in your classes, <laughs> how to be a priest, there's bows, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, do the, do the thing. Um, but then, of course, the priest um, comes around and incenses the community, and um, and in that always, I just get chills. And then the priest bows, and then the community bows, and it's just this beautiful moment of communion. But um, this it, this day and in this time and place, um, Louis had the thurible, and folks were kind of in a semicircle around the the makeshift altar, and and sl so slowly almost person by person um incenses like every person in this slow deliberate like unhurried way and it was I, it was just the most dignifying thing I've ever seen in my life um this is where I start to cry um it was so beautiful and I just for me that was a moment of heaven on earth because it was this way of saying you, like you deserve to be bathed in a beautiful scent, right? You deserve to have your feet washed. You deserve to have, you know, um, you know, candles lit before you. Um, you deserve music. You deserve prayer. Um, I think we take a very utilitarian approach to the poor often where it's like, well, you know what, nobody, you know, let's, let's fill some bellies first, which like, yes, we should, we should do that first. Um, but I think often we're like, well, what, these people don't need prayer. They don't need liturgy. They need a new pair of shoes. They need, um, they need clothes and a hot meal and a home. And like, yes, like, yes, to all of that. Um, but like prayer and spirituality and God and beauty, like these are, these are also human rights. And, um, and for, so for me, that was, that was like a little inbreaking, I think of, of heaven on earth. I think it's only appropriate that an image of heaven should move us to tears. And so I think that is a, a beautiful <laughs> image to, uh, to wrap our minds with and sit with as we, as we pray for that, for that, those heavenly moments in our life and reflect on those. You know, uh, you alluded to it earlier, Susan, it's kind of crazy how our two lives have kind of run on these parallel tracks. So for our listeners, <laughs> Susan and I both went to the same youth group parish, St. Thomas More, uh, back in Denver uh, and overlapped for a year there. And then she lived in Brownsville and went to San Felipe Parish, which is the parish where we now live in Cameron Park and serve at that parish. 
And then when you were living in Boston uh, at St. Mary the Angels, which was the source of, of your book, People Get Ready, that was where I served as a deacon during my deacon year, during my theology studies in Boston. So I guess my closing question to you is simply, if you could just let me know the name of your parish you're at now so that I know where I'm headed sometime <laughs> in the inevitable future. St. <laughs> Thomas, Second St. Thomas More, St. Thomas More Jesuit Parish in Decatur, Georgia. Oh so my it goodness. is not unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I can, I'll, I'll set a place before you. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know when, but now I know. I, I could just let my but provincial know. Hey, yeah, by well, the way. I'll, I'll let you know. The next big move I make, I'll let you know, because I know that you'll be there soon. The funny thing is, when I went back to the School of Theology and Ministry at BC um, in the spring, by then it was, oh, do you know Brian? (laughs) 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 So your your reputation by then was, was, you know strong. <laughs> well, that's great. And we can give a shout out to all those people, especially at St. Mary the Angels, much yes. beloved by the two of us. And so I'm, I'm sure they're going to tune in and get to listen to this episode that brings the two oh of us goodness. together uh, on a podcast. Our big fans of the Jesuit Border podcast, they were all <laughs> very excited to hear that we had just spent Holy Week together. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. Well, thank you, Susan, for, for uh, joining us for this podcast, for this interview, but most of all, for the incredible theology that you're doing for witnessing to these realities, for reflecting on them through a theological lens. It's super valuable, important work, and we really love all that you do. You said you're sometimes, you're always looking for an excuse to get back to Brownsville. Well, whenever you find one, look us up, let us know. We'd love to have you back. Nothing would make me happier.